Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now in fast, the Fed's still worried about inflation. The market falling for the ninth time in the last 12 trading days and rates keep on climbing. The tenure now with its highest yield since last October is a summer slump about to pick up steam. We'll debate that. Plus, full steam ahead, full stream ahead. Well, linear TV, TV's numbers keep tumbling. The streamers are crushing it. So who besides Netflix is ready to turn those eyeballs into profits? We'll go inside the numbers. And later, the growing bidding war for U.S. Steel. Tesla's awful August rolls on and the casino stocks crapping out after a monster heater. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market site on the desk tonight. Karen Feinerman, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, and Steve Grasso. And we start off with a surprising reaction to a pretty disappointing earnings report. Shares of Target rising nearly 9% immediately after posting Q2 results. The stock closing off those highs, but still up nearly 3% on the day. The move, despite some big negatives in the numbers, the company reporting its biggest revenue drop in seven years. Its first same-store sales declined in six. It also slashed full-year revenue and profit guidance as it struggles to rebound from its pride product backlash and a drop in consumer demand. Still, even with today's gains, Target is far underperforming its retail peers, down over 13% this year versus double-digit gains for the likes of Walmart, which reports tomorrow morning. So does Target's warning raise a red flag for the entire consumer space, or is this a targeted issue? Mm. Karen, what did you make of these numbers? I was surprised at the reaction, actually. We talked about this in the green room. I mean, it wasn't terrible. The best thing the target had going for it was the stock had really not performed well going into it. So that was that. The bar was low. Um, things seemed better, but uh, the you know the earnings were good. The guidance was not as good. Mm-hmm. It's not a crazy multiple, but the chasm between the Walmart multiple and the Target multiple is gigantic now. And so that's sort of when I first looked at several years ago that maybe that could close. They did seem optimistic. July was better. That last quarter was mm-hmm. wasn't great, but it wasn't terrible. Their inventories are improving. That was a gigantic issue last year. And so it wasn't terrible. They are hopeful for back to school all the way into September, they said. And I'm, I don't know if that's some bed, bath and beyond uh, consumers that they mm-hmm. could pick up. That would be good because those are a little bit better margin items. So wasn't terrible. I guess the street was looking for terrible. And I was kind of surprised, to be honest, the way the stock traded. If, if you think, all right, let's say they can make the midpoint of their guidance. It is, I don't know, a 16, 17 in their multiple, which isn't terrible, but it's not super, super cheap. I mean, yeah. it's 10 turns below yeah. what they yes. valued at. Yes. I mean, that's staggering. So is that why? the stock was up, that it just simply was too cheap. Relief rally. I mean, yeah. I'm sure Steve and Tim have views on this. I was surprised when, you know, if you had told me we play this game, what the numbers would be. I'm like, this stock's going to open lower for sure. It opened up $10, yeah. spent the rest of the day going lower. I think, what the, in my opinion, what the market took, inventories were down 17%. So they're like, okay, finally they're getting their inventories in check, which is a fine thing, except their product mix 
is still lousy. Now, valuation, yes, you can make a case and say, I'm willing to wait it out and Target will figure it out. But you've been able to say that for a long time. So I don't necessarily know if it's a read on the consumer as much as it is Target specific. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I did Squawk Box this morning. And yeah, I saw it. Yes. privileges of being on Squawk Box is to be able to talk to a lot of different people. Uh, you know, on the back of the target earnings. And so, you know, to a couple of analysts, I said, let's say you put the pride issues to the side, you know, and, right. and that's completely over. I mean, what what should target be worth? And they said, oh, you know, maybe 18 times. That's not far from where it is. Right. I mean, it's three turns higher, mm-hmm. uh, Tim, because of the mix. The mix is still overwhelmingly a very negative uh, issue for target going into this sort of economy. What do you think? But but. But the mix will get better. And, and so uh, I, I agree. If you take it at face value with a market that doesn't price stuff in, then you say uh, Target's a company I don't want to own. We've known this about their merchandise uh, and their product mix for the last three quarters. Uh, and, and the headlines, softening sales trends, decelerating discretionary. We, you know, so so you, you take a company that it's 16 times eight bucks a share for next year, which is somewhere around consensus, which came down, by the way, today after they they kind of tighten things up. And, and, and so uh, you, you have a very clean inventory position. You have uh, margin, I think, tailwind because of where you have lapped those full year margin headwinds from the inventory. Inventory shrink continues to be a problem. But, but really, what have you priced in with Target? I, I own Walmart. I don't own Target. Uh, Walmart's been a great stock to own and it's not cheap. And, and, but I think you stay there. Um, I think you can start to own Target here. Just one thing I want to add, uh, TJX Home Goods was a surprise beat. You would hope that you would see some of that same Home Goods kind of, you know, higher margin stuff mm-hmm. sell in Target. So it was a little disappointing that it wasn't more a better, a little bit better mix. Yeah. Steve, what's your take? And at this point, does it show, does this stock reaction show that maybe Target just got too cheap and it's time to take a look? Maybe the worst is behind it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, let's not forget we had woke wars with Target. I think that will probably not be as long-lasting as, as many uh, would have thought that would have been. And then when you compare it to Walmart, Walmart's revenues, 60% or over 60% come from groceries. Target, it's around 20%. So you really can't compare the two. I would still stay with, with Walmart, but it does really reflect the kitchen sink type, type element to it. Karen touched on it. You have back to school, then you have Christmas. So there's reasons to be bullish on Target where it is right now. The stock has not been above its 50-day in quite some time. Popped above it, now back below. But I think you could probably buy Target here. It's interesting because product placement is such an important factor for these companies. You have these things called impulse buy. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that Steve brought up back to school because it's pretty clear that Tim is preparing for back to school as he has his uh, thermos and lunchbox behind him. So good for you, Tim, getting ahead of this curve. That's a nice job. Well done. I I don't know how you folks are bringing your lunch to work, but I mean, if it's not in your Miss Pac-Man lunchbox and thermos, I I don't know what you're doing. So... um, of course, it's back to school. And, and uh, Guy, I assume you're going with the Charlie Brown, possibly, lunchbox. And well, with you know, and that was like, what are you doing? I'm going strong Brady Bunch this year. <laughs> I was hoping to find a Partridge family. I was not able to, unfortunately, Mel. Back to you. I Good think they don't make that. those anymore, yeah. and it's, you scour eBay, you probably can't find one either. Back to school, that's interesting because, Karen, you know, another analyst said that back to school is a, a 
very, very good indicator with how the rest of the year would go. Yes. Target specifically mentioned the resumption also of student loan payments as being a headwind yes. for the consumer, which right. I thought was... I mean, we did. all know that, but right. it's different when a CEO actually cites it. Right. I think, you know, they want to be cautious, yeah. uh, as they should be, having, you know, they've had a bit of a, riff, a rough go there. I, I, I was surprised at the back-to-school comment even lasting through September, and that would be good for them, though. They need to get their mojo back a little bit. I mean, getting the inventories in order was part of that, but um, it's, been a, it's been a tough slog here. Yeah. How much is there a read-through? Tim, do you think to Walmart, to other retailers, or do you think that Target is sandbagging a little bit on its guidance and a lot of the other issues are Target specific? Target tends to be very conservative. Mm -hmm. uh, I think some of these issues are Target specific, and, and uh, I think it just gets back to where you've seen Walmart win. First of all, Walmart wins on price. They push everyone around. Uh, they dictate price. And they will continue to do that in a softening environment. The, the trends for the consumer, again, to be clear, are not great here. And, and this plays into Walmart. Should Walmart be trading at a premium? I think so, because I think that multiple comes down. I think they're going to be more profitable. I think their margins are going higher. They've made major investments in their stores. They've made major investments in digital. They've made major investments in technology. So um, I think Walmart's customer is a similar customer, but not quite the same. And therefore, um, they're not going to necessarily see the world through the same set of eyes. Well, let's talk about the consumer quickly. I saw something on bank rate today, and this actually was somewhat astonishing. Second quarter last year, serious delinquencies for credit cards were 3.35%. In the same quarter this year, the second quarter, up to a little over, almost 5.1%. That's a market jump. And, you know, we're looking for cracks in the, cons in the, in the consumer armor. Well, that's the beginning of it for sure when you see that. All right. In the meantime, we are watching the 10-year yield. It popped on the back of the Fed minutes this afternoon, then gave back some of the increase. The benchmark rate climbing as high as 4.28%. That's a level last seen in October. For more on what drove that move and what the Fed minutes mean going into Jackson Hole next week, let's get to CNBC's Steve Leesman. Steve, you know, we, we've had the pleasure of hearing a lot of different Fed officials since that last meeting. Is, is anything really different from the FOMC minutes versus what we've heard recently? Well, I think we've uh, uh, got a little bit more disagreement uh, among Fed officials. Uh, so at the July meeting, remember, they hiked by a quarter point, right? Uh, and they thought more hikes would be needed. Uh, a minority emerged here suggesting the case was not so clear. And even two participants we learned in the minutes today, Melissa, thought the Fed should not have hiked at all. The minutes said, here's a uh, sort of a juxtaposition of two very different ideas. A number judged that risk to the achievement of the committee's goals had become more two-sided, more balanced. But they went on to say also most participants see significant upside risk to inflation, which could require further tightening of monetary policy. I think that was the operative phrase that essentially uh, moved the markets this afternoon. So the minutes were somewhat more balanced than they've been recently. But I think it's too early to sound the all-clear signal on rate hikes. Here's some of the stuff going on now. You have CPI, of course, came in below expectations after the meeting. Payroll growth did cool again. That was after the meeting, though remaining, of course, above trend. It was retail sales and industrial production today uh, above expectations. And these GDP forecasts, as you know, Melissa, have been raised sharply for the third quarter. So the outlook for GDP, I think, is really important to the rate outlook here because the minute said many think that you need below trend growth to bring supply and demand into balance. The economy is not definitely below trend at this point. It may be quite a bit above trend. 
And, you know, I'm guessing, Melissa, I'm hoping we get some clarity on the Fed's next move next week. Uh, it could come at the Jackson Hole meeting, get a speech by, likely speech by Jer, uh, Fed Chair Powell, and then we'll have some, hopefully, some interviews with several Fed officials there. Um, Steve, you know, for so long the focus had been on you know, whether or not the Fed is going to hike again, how many hikes, and, and to some degree we're still focused on that. But it seems like the, the next dimension that the Fed would address maybe at an opportunity like Jackson Hole would be how long monetary policy remains restrictive. Do you think the Fed, Jerome Powell, tackles that sort of policy dimension in this speech to really hammer that home? Because the Fed doesn't necessarily need to raise rates again, but if it does keep rates elevated, it will still be restrictive. Um, I think that's a smart way to think about it, Melissa, because what he doesn't want to talk about is cuts. And I think he's sort of done talking about hikes. So although I think he wants to keep those on the table. So I think the, the, the next sort of macro question is, how long do you stay on hold? And there is this question out there that the Fed, in order to not become more restrictive as inflation falls, is to reduce rates. So if it's going to stay there for a while, when you look at the way the market is structured, about a 37% probability of a rate hike in November. So, you know, 40%, call it whatever, a little bit elevated today, uh, uh, all day, especially in light of the higher um, economic forecast we've had. But then look into next, next year, and now you have cuts built in, um, and the market and the Fed are a little bit off sides on that, a little bit different there. But the market starts to see um, uh, rate cuts coming in May and then more as the year goes by with about three rate cuts built in for next year. All right. Steve, thanks. Go catch your plane. Steve Leesman. <laughs> I love that shot from the airport. It's a beautiful it shot is, in a... Washington. Yeah. Um, what, do you, what do you think? Uh, last year was an eight-minute speech out of Jackson Hole from Jerome Powell. And it was Similar. Yeah. But, I, you know, I think they have some runway, well, no pun intended, but some runway to sort of, you know, I think they can start to put some test balloons out there just to see, especially given what's going on with the Bank of Japan, their bond market, yield curve control seemingly losing a little bit of control, and obviously what's going on in China. That might give them some air cover to actually talk a little bit more dovish than they've been. So we'll see. But they could go either way. I will tell you, though, in my opinion, closing above four and a quarter in the 10-year yield is a big deal. These are levels we saw in October. And if you recall where the equity market was in October, it wasn't particularly good. Well, I mean, I think, you know, to think about this in the context of yesterday, the intraday high was 4264. And so for us to go and close practically at that level is kind of mm -hmm. psychologically important. Um, Karen? Well, I sort of think, you know, if they do hike, then it'll be a little more dovish rhetoric. If they don't hike, then it'll be a little more hawkish rhetoric. Just trying to you know, keep people sort of from getting too worked up or too excited over the idea that they'll start cutting. I don't think they want, I don't think they want that out there. No, I, yeah. I think they want to put the cuts, you know, like, yes, no. uh, Right. But you, now it sounds like there's some dissent. Um, I, I had thought, uh, I, I'm a little surprised there was some, I don't know, we'll see, we'll see where the next meeting goes. But I, I think that higher for longer, how could they not be until something dramatically changes? We right. keep expecting labor to change or... And it hasn't. It hasn't. It hasn't. Retail it sales hasn't. are good. All right. these are good. Industrial, right. Production. All right. For more on the Fed in Jackson Hole, let's bring in former Fed Governor Randall Krosner. He's currently a University of Chicago professor of economics. Randy, great to have you with us. What do you think Jerome Powell's job number one is at Jackson Hole next week? Well, it's interesting because remember last year he ripped up the script mm -hmm. and he gave a much shorter speech and said the same thing eight times inflation is our priority. And so in some sense, uh, he's not going to take a victory lap, 
But they've made a lot of progress. Inflation has come down a lot. They've raised interest rates quite a bit. And I think he's going to talk about how um, inflation is starting to come down, but that the Fed needs to continue to remain vigilant, exactly as you guys were just describing. They don't want to give any signal that they're going to be cutting anytime soon, and they're not going to be cutting anytime soon. Randy, it's Tim. Thanks for joining us. How is the Fed viewing the rest of the world right now? And some of the issues we're starting to see um, may make their job easier, may make their job more difficult. There's a bit of a flight to quality going on to the dollar. There's certainly a dynamic with the Chinese economy and, and even other central banks that are making the Fed, even on a relative basis, look more hawkish than they might. Uh, is that good or bad? Uh, it, it, they're going to take that into account and, and certainly... Uh, uh, we're getting a lot of negative news out of China. So China is you know, slipping into deflation. They're cutting, cutting rates. Other central banks are either holding or, or, or raising rates. And so very, very different in different parts of the world. Uh, I think they would like to see a little bit less uh, uh, excitement and activity globally. Not that they want to see recession, but you know, as, uh, as, as the minutes made really clear and their statements have made really clear, if the economy continues to be kind of uh, steaming forward with near record low unemployment levels, increasing GDP growth, it's really hard to see how that's going to be consistent with inflation continuing to come down and staying sustainably close to their, their 2% goal. So I think a little bit of slowness in the rest of the world will be welcome, but certainly they don't want a global recession. Randy, when you look at it, you just touched on it. Is the, does the Fed have to wait until the jobs market cracks? That's number one. And what do you think about long and variable lags? Because there's a lot of stuff that could still be coming down the, the, the pike, so to speak. For sure. So my, and I'm at University of Chicago and Milton Friedman, you know, a great University of Chicago economist, had uh, 50 years ago talked about long and variable lags of monetary policy. And boy, are we still seeing that uh, today because the Fed's been, been at it for a uh, year, year and a half. And the labor market is still in a near record uh, low unemployment rate. So I think exactly as you said, they're going to wait to see some of the heat coming out of the, the labor market. Now, some people won't be satisfied until they actually see the unemployment rate start to move up. Others will say, well, as long as the, uh, the growth rate of wages comes down a little bit. So I think that's kind of where some, uh, some people around the table will, will disagree. Um, but I really don't see how they can feel comfortable to say, okay, we're not going to be raising anymore if the labor market is as strong as it is now. Randy, I'm just curious, you know, we got earnings this morning from, from Target. We're getting earnings tomorrow from Walmart. Um, and so many people are expecting the consumer to endure more stress as the year goes on because they're taking on more debt. They're paying higher rates. Um, they've got student loans that they have to start repaying in October. What's, what's your take? Do you think the Fed, um, you know, preemptively takes that into consideration when thinking about these hikes? Or do they wait to see that impact on the consumer? I think they're still waiting to see the impact because you know the consumer has been quite resilient. Consumer confidence has been strong. You know we we really see it's it's really quite impressive how you know whether it's COVID uh, or whether all these or interest rates um, moving up to um, uh, to levels they haven't been in in many many years. Consumer has been pretty resilient, and uh, and that's great. But it also makes the Fed's job a little bit harder. So I think they're going to want to see a little bit less. Um, uh, a less strength there, a little bit more moderation before they're going to be able to uh, to feel comfortable to say, okay, no more hikes. But as I said, they ain't going to be talking about cuts for a very long time. Yeah. Randy, thanks.
Randy Krosner. All right, so what's the market reaction to that message? If that message is loud and clear next week, Guy, mm-hmm. in terms of no rate, rate cuts in the near future, like get that out of your mind, markets. We're not even talking about that yet. Market's not going to like that. I mean, if that's yeah. because I do think my sense is until obviously the last week or so, the run up in the rally has been predicated on exactly that. Some hope, in my words, misguided belief that in the beginning of next year, January, February, are going to be rate cuts. I don't see that happening. So if they were to completely take that off the table, despite the fact that we've sold off pretty significantly, I think you'll see a further sell off in the market. Coming up, we've got some after-hours action in Cisco. Shares on the move after reporting results, the latest numbers out of that quarter ahead. But first, all eyes glued to the likes of Suits and Bluey. Guy's favorite show, obviously. Mm. And streamers logged billions of viewing minutes in July. What it means for the billions of dollars up for grabs in the streaming wars. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. You've heard of binging, but 23 billion minutes of it? New data pointing to a pivotal moment in the streaming wars. Julia Borson's got all the details. Julia. Melissa, this summer marks a key tipping point for the entertainment industry. For the very first time, linear TV viewership fell below half of all TV usage in July. That's according to a new report from Nielsen. So that 23 billion viewing minutes number you referenced, that was viewing of Suits on Netflix and Peacock and Bluey on Disney+. Plus. Now, those two shows were July's most-watched streaming programs. The success of decade-old Suits speaks to Netflix's ability to mine old content and turn it into a big new hit. Guggenheim writing, quote, we see the unique strength of YouTube, 9.2% viewing share, and Netflix, 8.5%, as particularly noteworthy given the ubiquity of competing streaming services. These two industry leaders combined for nearly as much viewing as total broadcast television. They also accounted for 70% of streaming industry growth in the month. So now the strength of streaming growth will be threatened by rising prices. It's what I'm calling streamflation. The top six streaming services without ads will cost $87 this fall. That's up from $73 a year ago. So we'll have to see if consumers opt for lower cost ad supported options or if they start to drop some of these subscriptions. So Melissa, the cost of that bundle of all of those streamers this fall, that's actually more than basic cable TV. Wow. Julie, and I like streamflation. That is catchy. Julie Borson, good job on that. Thank you. Why are you laughing? Some people invent terms and they, well, they're not is, catchy and they're not funny. They're not, they make me. no Story sense. Story of my life. All the things but I do. streamflation is perfect. It's, it's perfect. How do you trade this? Yeah. Screen, screen, what do you call it? Streamflation. Streamflation. 
Well, quickly, Nancy's been with us for years. You don't see Nancy, yes. but she's a... We could see her if the jib turns around. If the yeah. jib turn around. But in the break, she's like, you're the, you're the father on this Bluey thing. Right. I, don't know, I don't know this you Bluey. Which one can stream. But it's, apparently it's a cartoon. So I want to either thank her or not thank her. I'm not sure. Netflix, though, if you go back to last April, it took a pause around 390, and Steve has pointed this out. Doesn't mean it's broken. Netflix is still the best in show. But I think if you're looking for an entry point, you've got to wait to that level. We're probably about $20 or so from it. I think it's going to get there, Milms. Yeah. Grasso? Oh, by the way, Nancy, this might have been her debut, maybe the second or third time she's booked. But we saw, we saw her in oh, that shot. Oh, did we? Oh, yeah. it's outstanding. Did? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where? She's hiding. Uh, we saw her. In the uh, shadows. Grasso? Excellent. Everybody loves uh, loves Nancy. So when you look at Netflix, I, I do agree with guys level. I'd even go uh, a, a little bit lower than that. There's been a couple of tailwinds for Netflix. Obviously, it was the password sharing crackdown. Then it was the writer strike because they just already have so much more content than everybody else. It's their share to lose. But to Guy's point, when you look at the chart, it has been roaring above its 50 day and above the rest of its moving averages for quite some time. It's dipped below now. So if you look at this chart, it looks like it wants to go lower. There's not a whole heck of a lot of other streamers to play, but all the air has come out of like a Comcast because Comcast is associated with that linear side of the television business. But I think people are overlooking some of the other players in the space, in streaming, because Netflix has definitely sucked up all the air, air in the room. Yeah, or is this a story of people pay up for, for, for you know, these packages, they will accept streamflation because they will cut back on other areas of entertainment because it's a lot cheaper to pay $83 a month or whatever the ultimate cost is for a bundle of these streamers versus right. actually go someplace or go to the movies. But there's also the issue of you have so many competitors and some of them are just not going to be able to hang on anymore. Right now. Yeah. So well, I don't know. We'll see if they combine or what. One thing I just want to point out, though, that YouTube number and that's something Gene Munster talks a lot about is not the streamers, but the YouTube, the TikToks, you know, whoever. That's where eyeballs are going. So um, it's Netflix to lose. I dip my toe in Disney and now my toe is <laughs> so there and a bear partially. Yeah. OK. Coming up, the earnings season just keeps rolling on. Cisco on the move in the after hours. All the numbers from that quarter next, plus reports of another offer on the table for U.S. Steel, the company that might be throwing its hat in the ring and why everyone seems to want a piece of steel. You're watching Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money, a volatile day on Wall Street after the Fed said it cannot rule out more rate hikes. Major indices closing near their lows of the day, the Dow sliding more than 180 points. The S&P dropping 33 points and the Nasdaq lost 156 points or more than a percent. Tower Semiconductor and Intel among the day's biggest laggards. Both stocks down after Intel canceled its deal to acquire Tower, citing a failure to get regulatory approvals. 
from China in time. Tower tumbling almost 11% on that. On the upside, Keurig Dr. Pepper rising more than 1% after an upgrade from UBS analysts slapping a buy rating on the beverage stock, pointing to a cheap valuation. Meantime, shares of Cisco are volatile despite the networking company turning in its biggest earnings beat since November 2020. Revenue is also topping estimates, but Cisco issuing cautious guidance for its new fiscal year. It's up 2.6% right now. Christina Parks-Nevelis has been on the conference call. What's the latest, Christina? Well, it seems like there's been quite a reversal because of the commentary on this conference call. And if we could just uh, continue to roll through with what I've written, it's causing shares to actually increase now 2.6% because most of that had to do with lifting spirits on product orders. CEO Chuck Robbins noted on the earnings call that product orders in the quarter were up 30% year over year with double-digit increases in all customer markets. Like you said, Melissa, the guidance was a little bit light for the new fiscal year. Revenues came in light. Or EPS was in line. And CEO Chuck Robbins saying on the call just moments ago that customer buying from service providers is, quote, weak because customers are digesting a lot of the infrastructure they already bought. And why is that? Keep in mind, over what, oh, two years ago, the company faced a shortage of parts. And with those parts available just over the last year or so, the company has been able to play catch up and ship out all of those delayed orders, helping sales. But what we're seeing is that bump is fading. They mentioned it several times on the call. Another bright spot, Cisco is focusing on network services and software. That's been their big pivot. And on the call, the CEO said software renewals in the enterprise networking space would hit $1 billion this year. In other words, finally, quote, meaningful, according to him. And speaking of the CEO, Chuck Robbins, he will be on CNBC tomorrow at 9 a.m., first on CNBC. Mel? All right, Christina, thanks. Christina Parts-Nevelis. Tim, what's your take on Cisco? I'm long Cisco, although I sold upside calls uh, to the end of the week, uh, thinking the stocks had a 20 percent run into these numbers. And uh, there's no way they were going to tell you uh, that they had uh, you know, off the hook demand. What they are telling you, though, is they're seeing customer demand in all the right areas, uh, AI, uh, software, security for sure. And, and it really gets down to whether you've now guided to low single digit growth into 24. It's a, it's a very resilient company. It used to be uber cyclical, uh, less so, and, and some sexiness in the higher margin businesses I just talked about at 12 and a half times 24. This is the cheapest mega cap tech stock out there. I mean, it is a still a $220 billion company uh, and I stay long. I, I think it's had a good run and it, it's consolidated a little bit here, but um, I, I, I'm happy to own it. Yeah, okay. The guidance, if they're sandbagging next year, the stock is cheap. I think Tim is right. Because, look, in, revenue was up 16% year over year. EPS was up, I think, 43% year over year. Valuation is compelling. The guidance wasn't great. But I think maybe they're being disciplined in this environment, which is a smart thing to do. I don't think you can get hurt being along Cisco here. Despite the run it's at, I think you can stay long the name. Yeah. How about you, Grasso? Yeah, when you look at the chart, the chart looks uh, great. For a long time, Cisco used to be a, a, a real economic barometer for the rest of the space. But as uh, Christina said, the most important commentary out of Cisco is always orders and backlog. And if they're working through that backlog, that's bullish. And I agree with uh, what Guy had said. I think they're being overly cautious. That's just Cisco's way. I I would continue to be long the name. All right. Coming up, is there a new steel deal in the works? Reports that another mining giant could be looking to scoop up U.S. steel. So can this one go the distance? We'll debate that next. Plus, Hertz and GM hoping to sell drivers on EV rentals. But can customers count on the charging network to get them where they need to go? What the CEOs of those companies are saying when Fast Money returns. Missed a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money podcast. 
We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. U.S. Steel shares jumping as much as 6% today after news. A new bidder is interested in the company. Reuters is reporting ArcelorMittal could join the list of suitors, but it could be an uphill climb. The United Steelworkers Union saying an ArcelorMittal deal would be foolish and that they will only endorse a takeover by Cleveland Cliffs. U.S. Steel rejected a $7.3 billion bid from Cleveland on Sunday. It also received a $7.8 billion bid from privately held Esmark on Monday. It does seem like things are lining up in favor of uh, of Cleveland, but I get. Yeah, although you know, with this uh, FTC mm-hmm. and and this is sort of an iconic name, right? Even though the con- the company is surprisingly small, you think about U.S. Right. Steel as a huge behemoth, and it's not. Um, you could see. I think that's why it's not trading so great, given that there are potentially other bidders. But um, I think also that that uh, Mittal is sort of a syphious issue waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. So um, I, don't know how they, I don't know how it gets resolved. As, a, as an ARB who's sort of intrigued, I don't own it. Yeah. Um, Tim, you know, you, you brought the point, I think, Tim, today on the conference call, U.S. Steel. It's in the name. So does that make it, right. the, you know, such that the FTC would block a deal because they want to preserve U.S. Steel, or they would say, okay, Cleveland Cliffs, you go ahead and acquire U.S. Steel because the unions are in favor of it, and it creates a large... U.S., United States-based steel company. Look, this is the world we may be in, but U.S. steel is not a strategic uh, sector player. And Mm -hmm. and at a 6.8 billion market cap, as Karen pointed out, it's hardly the company it used to be. Uh, Mattel is the second largest steel company in the world that, that grew that way through enormous steel consolidation, which we saw in, in the 2000s, in the first kind of part of the, of, the, of the decade. There's an enormous amount of steel capacity online. U.S. steel is not cheap. The balance sheet is actually pretty good after a couple of years of extremely high steel prices. But if you look at their last earnings, I think they reported uh, at the end of July, uh, you can see that the guidance for the second half is very different and that on a trailing basis, this company's wicked expensive. It's almost like let them all bid for it. It's, it's interesting. It's puzzling. Um, some of the specialty steels that they're now in uh, make them a, a bit of a niche player. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, I think more important for the unions that U.S. steel stays in the hands of a U.S. company than it probably is for the United States from a strategic perspective. Uh, Steve, would you trade on any of this? Yeah, I, I always like to trade on this type of stuff. But the but I think the bigger takeaway um, is that all of these assets are ha, have been just knocked down and decimated. If you look at a long term chart on U.S. Steel, it, it, it's a mess. The levels that we're at are horrendous for shareholder value. So I think it's I think it's more a product of how deep the discounts have been for value companies. So you should start looking through your portfolio or screening names like this for these type of pops. There's been an opportunity in the space for consolidation for years. So the question I would ask, what do they see now that they didn't see six months ago, a year ago, five years ago? Clearly something's changed. So with respect to Lee Strasberg, and there are about three people out there that have any idea what that means, I think it speaks to the industry and the resource trade, which might start to see some reacceleration in the back half of this year and early next year, which, again, leads to my sort of thesis that inflation is going to rear its ugly head again. So I like what this is telling you about the resource trade and about names in the space. Right. Coming up, plugged in and ready to rent. 
Hertz and GM are hoping to push the EV rental space into the mainstream, but the charging situation could be a bumpy road ahead. But the CEOs of both companies had to say on the matter, don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Almost a year after announcing their EV rental partnership, GM and Hertz are working to sell customers on driving the EVs that are available. Problem is, there is a trust issue with the public charging networks. Both these stocks closing down more than a percent today. Our Phil Lebeau sat down with the CEOs earlier on Power Lunch. He joins us now with all of the details. I guess uptake hasn't been that great over the past year, Phil. It's not that the uptake hasn't been great, Melissa. It's that what General Motors, what Hertz, really what everybody in the auto industry is finding is that when you have people charging an EV at home, no problem. I'm confident I've got the juice to go where I need to go. You want me to go on a long drive? Eh, I'm not so sure about the public charging network. Take a look at a survey that was released today from J.D. Power. Now, they do this every year where they talk with EV owners and they say, tell us what your thoughts are when it comes to public chargers. And you know what they found this year? People don't like it. They don't like it at all. In fact, the the survey found over 15,000 people were asked, and every single metric that they were asked about, they were lower in terms of their responses. Main complaints, cost too much, the chargers are too slow, and they have long lines. Now, against this backdrop, Hertz is releasing a video series, the first of them coming out this week with General Motors CEO Mary Barra, along with the CEO of Hertz, Stephen Schur talking about how you can have confidence if you rent an electric vehicle at Hertz. And they believe that this is part of what they need to do to convince the public you can rent an electric vehicle and you can have confidence in it. Here is Stephen Schur and Mary Barra earlier today on Power Lunch. We're seeing demand in a number of areas of our business. First, we're seeing it in leisure. We're also seeing it in the corporate business where corporate customers of ours want to put their employees into electric vehicles to satisfy some of their own sustainability objectives. Having that opportunity to experience an electric vehicle, I think is really game changing. I mean, it's instant torque. The vehicles are, you know, are beautifully designed. And so uh, we think it's going to be very important to drive EV adoption. Take a look at shares of Hertz and General Motors. Keep in mind that, as you saw at the bottom of the screen there, GM is in the process of selling 175,000 electric vehicles to Hertz that they will feather into their fleet over the next four or five years. But the question remains, Melissa, regardless of the confidence that Stephen Schur or Mary Barra has or any of the CEOs of the automakers have in their electric vehicles being able to get you where you want to go, the question is whether or not the public truly will gain confidence in these public chargers. Because I can tell you this, Melissa, the number of people I know with EVs who maybe have to go from Chicago to St. Louis or Chicago to Denver, they're not crazy about the prospect of driving an electric vehicle that far. Uh, If you rent a car from Hertz, is there a difference in price if you rent an EV versus an ICE vehicle? It's it's comp it's comparable. I mean, you will have to charge up your EV. You get a lot more people willing to try it. Well, you make anything cheap, people will try it. Um, but but their feeling is that the idea of the experience of driving electric, along with the comparable cost, means that people will eventually say, you know what, I'm in the mood to see if I can be comfortable in a particular electric vehicle and that they will rent it. All right. Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau. You bet. I don't know. If I'm on a business trip, I'm not going to be in the mood to try 
something. <laughs> if I'm not sure about the charging network or if I'm on vacation, I don't know if I want to try it with my family loaded up in the car and to sit for half an hour at a charging station, if I could even get a spot at that charging station, if the charger actually works, Tim. I don't know. This seems like there are a lot of things if people are really apprehensive about this. A price cut seems like <laughs> that would do the trick. Well. I, I think that GM has a shot to showcase whatever is their own technology and, and to the extent that they're trying to show off their models. And, and you do that uh, through a rental car. And also the other dynamics are if Tesla really is 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 dominant as they are and they are, um, then then there are plenty of EV people out there that are ready to go rent an EV car that are not, you know, that have gone on vacation without their Tesla. Um, when it comes down to it, this is not market moving news for GM. Uh, what will be is when we start to see real you know, acceleration, pun intended, in terms of their EV business. Right now, to assume that EV, uh, to assume that Ford and GM will not be major EV players is crazy. Um, their business is moving in that direction. And in, in the meantime, in GM's case, I'll just speak to GM. They, they've never been more efficient. Uh, they're running at a higher margin and they're developing a fair amount of EBITDA every year. Um, I, I just think you have to hang in there, Swan. I have. It's been terribly frustrating. Um, this news doesn't change the story. Their ICE business is very solid. Their EV business is slow. Let's stick with EVs here. Tesla falling again today as the company announces price cuts to the Model S and Model X in China. The move comes after the company cut the price of, of the 3 and the Y. Options traders are betting there could be even more declines for the stock. Kelly Intelligence CEO Kevin Kelly joins us now with the action. Kevin. Hi, Melissa. Well, today we saw 1.06 times the amount of puts traded versus calls, and that got stronger throughout the day. Now we're heading into an options expiration on Friday, and we actually saw the largest contracts traded today were the at-the-money puts. And so you saw 108, over 118,000 puts traded for the $225 strike that expires this Friday, and they were trading at the end of the day at $3. All right, Kevin, thanks. Kevin Kelly from Options Action. Tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, snake eyes in the casino space. The big players all in the red, and one name is nearing a key level of support. Will it hold or go bust? A name to watch when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Synopsys. You can catch the full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. Meantime, casino stocks uniformly in the red today. It's been a rough month for the group with several names dropping double digits in August. Las Vegas Sands in particular could be at a tipping point, closing below its 200-day moving average for the first time since October. Tim, you uh, flagged this move earlier today. I did because I watch this stock a lot. I'm long, and, and I think uh, I, I think you stay long. I'm, I'm very confident that the Macau business and the Marina Bay, Marina Sands Bay in Singapore are businesses that still have a lot of room to run. I, uh, the the pull down for LVS is look at Melco. I mean, you know, look at what's going on as we get this news out of China and some of the slower uh, dynamics. We continue to get better numbers out of Macau, by the way, in terms of gross gaming revenue. So uh, I think that's the story here. It doesn't mean that you couldn't, uh, you know, technically be concerned about some of these price moves. Uh, I do think you have a case where at 12 times EV EBITDA, this company still trades well south of where it did pre-pandemic. And I think this reopening uh, has proven to be something that's uh, very frustrating to try to trade and expect a one-way move in Macau. But stay there. This, This company's executing. How do you sort of um, take all the bad data that we're getting out of China 
and factor that into the Macau story, I mean, it seems like it would be a huge, enormous drag or at least a, an overhang. Tim. Well, I think, yeah, so, so look, the, the, the choppiness of the Macau data is, is in line with the reopening and just how choppy it's been. If you think China uh, and their mass market and their VIP in Macau is not going to get back to normal, then get out of this trade. I, I don't know how that doesn't happen. Uh, mm -hmm. I recognize that China, in terms of macro, we could talk for, for hours about the structural problems with the Chinese economy. Uh, Macau is a place that will be alive and well. So I, I'm not terribly worried about the choppiness. Two months ago, the Macau recovery looked fantastic. I think it will look fantastic in two months as well. Mm -hmm. Well, just interesting to note, the K-Web and LBS are exactly the same, exactly, over the last year. So it really is a proxy. Yeah. Right. Steve, where are you in this? Yeah, so Las, I, I, I love Las Vegas over the years, the, the Las Vegas Sands, but the problem is uh, all of the geographic or, or, or geopolitical headwinds. If you look at Wynn and, and Las Vegas, those charts look similar. They're both battling with their 200-day moving average. If you go with the reverse of that and you go with a Vegas-dependent uh, casino name like MGM, that one on a chart looks better. I think it comes with a lot less headwinds. I'd rather be an MGM than the other two. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Cisco, uh, despite a conservative guide, has a business where that multiple can move higher on higher margin business like software and even some AI exposure. But uh, it really is about a 12 and a half times multiple that gets me excited. Steve? Tapestry, the other side of the Capri, as I believe Karen would pronounce it. Trade, I'm out of Capri. I'm still in Tapestry. I'm looking for that bounce. I think it's coming. Tapestry. Karen. Yes, TJX, I mean, a fantastic quarter. Beat on almost everything. Raised margins. I like it here even higher. Key. The sell-off in electronic arts, Melissa, I think it's overdone. Back to you. Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.